Welcome back to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future and to the second half of this episode with the CBD gin entrepreneur, Sally Winter. In this half, we delve a bit more into her personal story and what she has planned for the future. Sally, that was um, an amazing kind of first part to it all. Like we got it, quite deep, didn't we? We did like. get we did get quite deep. Like, <laughs> fortunately, that's why we uh, we had a bit of a break and so on. And this is the first time that we've had a, a very recently exited entrepreneur on the show. So I actually wanted to spend a bit of time talking about the the future and and kind of what that holds um, for you. And and on that. The question that we most commonly ask and we get great feedback about is if you could go back to the start of your entrepreneurial journey and tell your sort of future self something and those that are starting out now, what would be the one thing you wish you'd known? So one of the things that I really uh, messed up with, I would that would definitely be a lesson for any future business and, and just I think in general is communication. Um, so when I launched... Um, the gym brand with this crazy virus strategy, everything actually went to shit. Like uh, what happened was, so I, I had these labels obviously from a few months before that I'd stuck on to do these photos. And what happened was the, the first of many problems was those labels were not compatible. So there'd been a disconnect between the distillery and the label wow. printers who do actually work together usually. So it was a surprise. They said, oh, these won't fit. We just can't, we can't put them on the line. Yeah. So then you're looking at hand labeling so, you know, that was expensive, 50p a bottle or a pound a bottle. It's like pricey stuff when you're doing a couple hundred. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, okay, fine. Um, I'll just have to do hand labeling. I've already got kind of orders. Then what happens is all these orders that have come in from the, the, the press pieces and LinkedIn and just kind of talking about it. Uh, I did not realize that CBD does, uh, sorry, PayPal does not like CBD. So I was like, they froze the account with all the money inside. And um, for a while, I thought I wasn't even going to be able to get the money back to people. But once it was refunded, I then had to go and email people being like, oh, I know you've ordered this product that still isn't quite ready yet. It's coming. Um, But uh, I actually had to refund you. And could you now please order again? Like I had to offer discounts and stuff. So there was both of those issues. And then when I finally had these hand-labeled bottles that were ready to go out to customers, the forklift driver dropped this first pallet of Muhu and it smashed all the bottles soaked into these cardboard boxes. And it ended up being maybe like six to eight weeks like between these these people that had ordered the product and then actually receiving it. And I was just very lucky that um, I didn't really get any cancellations um, because I would have been quite annoyed if I was that that customer because there was just no communication going on. I didn't email being like, oh, this and that, and I've had this issue and that issue because I was quite scared to kind of make it look like maybe I didn't know what I was doing. I think there was briefly an email when the, the pallet smashed, but like what was your it could have been a lot better. Basically. What was your reaction when that pallet smashed? I actually started laughing because I had had so many things going wrong. Yeah, it was almost just like, I don't know what else to do but laugh at like why something in the universe is fucking with me right now. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just, just a, a cataclade of error after error, like after launch. And yeah, you, you need to, to learn, learn quick and figure those things out. And it took like six to eight weeks to get a high risk payment provider, basically, because I then learned that CBD is apparently on par with like porn, like credit card blog, but companies like Visa and stuff 
will not deal with it. I don't know if that's still the case today, but it certainly was back then. About at the start. It's yeah. The problems you don't don't <laughs> You envisage. don't anticipate, yeah. And what's your kind of advice to a, an entrepreneur kind of starting out 21, 22 now? You know, it has become quite fashionable almost to sort of have a, a, a side hustle or, or something that you're doing. I don't particularly like the term side hustle, but, you know, it's become something that people are really sort of passionate and keen on doing now. Yeah. What's your advice to them? Talk to people about your idea. Like, a lot of people are scared when they think they have this idea. They're like, oh, I can't tell anyone because they're going to steal my idea. They're not going to steal your idea. Like, the chances of that are so tiny because when when you're, before you kind of get into the game, you think, oh, there's million pound ideas. You know, you, you dream of having this million pound idea. But then when you get into it, you realize there's no such thing as a million pound idea. There's only million pound execution. And what that looks like is someone hearing your idea and thinking it's so good that they're, they're then prepared to basically probably work without a salary, probably spend five years of their life chasing something where the chances of you exiting are actually really small. So just talk to people about your idea, like sound it out. I, when I got kind of feedback from people and advice, I didn't always take everything. I kind of cherry pick things. I was like, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. I actually don't get on board with that idea. But just talk to people as much as possible and get feedback because two eyes are always kind of better than one. Definitely. And just one thing I would add on that slightly is the the mum test for how this book called The Mum Test for how to talk to people is quite good right, in that okay. sense, because it basically it goes through the idea. I'm going to go on a bit now, but it talks through that if you go to your mum or anyone with an idea for something and you basically give them the idea yeah they will almost certainly go yes that's that that's that sounds great and basically you get lots of kind of like false kind of affection for it oh right yeah i did not have that <laughs> i yeah. did not have that definitely not i got the other side of that like the weird looks i thought you're gonna be like if your mum likes it it's not a cool idea <laughs> no no it's 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 <laughs> but yeah i know what you mean yeah people close to you won't criticize you basically you exactly. need someone that's not afraid to critique like and that should be how you are with like the team around you um totally. as well you need to be like yes 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 men are just not helpful you want someone that tells you you're wrong and this is why <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um, you need that that kind of critical. The other thing also is, which I thought you were going to get into, is don't design. If everyone loves your thing, you've done something wrong. Like Muhu was very chalk and cheese. Some people were like, "Oh, I hate the branding." Some people were like, "I love it. I love the idea." But the point is. People were worried about going too niche, and there is such a thing as too niche with your demographic. But actually, you need a point of people knowing, oh, yeah, it's those people that do that thing specifically. You, you can't try and please everyone. And if you do, it's it's probably not a viable business. That's definitely true. But is there such a thing as too niche to start out with? I think so. As in, if you're assessing the viability of a, a product with a certain community, that community, I mean, it all depends what your goals are. If you're looking to build something that could be a 100, 200, 300 million pound company, then you need to know there's a customer base big enough that are going to buy into that. Well, of course. But, but most, but most, yeah. I mean, I mean, CBD gin's pretty niche, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, it was already a huge industry in the US and stuff. Um, yeah. So there's, yeah, I mean, that particular type of product was niche, but then people know what they, they're looking for, right? And it's certainly the reason that, that the business ended up getting acquired was, was the CBD factor, not the gin. Without 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 the CBD, it would have just been another gin, just with cool branding. Yeah, yeah. 
but that is a big big part of what we uh what we buy into isn't it and so what next yeah we we talked a bit at the end of the previous episode just about how you've got peace of mind now and you can pursue things that you're passionate about mm. what are you passionate about and, and what is going to be the next thing so I spoke about always having that, that that original passion for for doing something in tech and just feeling completely inadequate, um, and that's definitely what I'm going to be going after next. Um, I'd really like to revolutionise the way that companies hire young, non-technical talent. So I'm talking about school leavers, university leavers going into like non-specific roles in startups and SMEs where they want someone they can train up, or like sales marketing roles, um, because right now we use the CV and I. I just think it's amazing we have all these technical technological advancements and we're still looking at a CV. And the biggest issue with the CV is not only that it puts across zero personality, you know, and it's too easy to apply with a CV. You know, you just have this kind of click after click after click. Um, but it carries bias through from the system because we know that, you know, our top, a lot of employers will be like, especially when I was coming out as a graduate, they were like, only top, please only apply if you're from a top uni. But who gets into our top uni- universities? You know, it's not people from diverse backgrounds, which, but then you hear on the other side, oh, we want diverse talent. Yeah. But that's a broken system. So um, that's definitely like probably what I'm looking to, to find a solution for next. And how do you think it could be, how do you think it could be better? So I agree with a lot of what you say, although mm. I do think the universities are making, are making better strides in, in terms of the, diversity aspect i also think it's interesting what we actually classify as diverse and classify can almost be quite deliberate there in terms of you know i don't actually think that sometimes that universities and employers put enough emphasis on hiring people from working Mm. class backgrounds yeah Um, i had someone reach out to me recently that was like um yeah i'd like to hire people from different backgrounds but it always ends up being top unis private school background like how how can i do that and i was like i I honestly not really sure how you would filter through to be honest yeah um but yeah also just a cv doesn't put across personality and when you're looking for for especially talent right at the beginning obviously also there's there's nothing else to look at so it's not like further ahead hiring where you're like oh well they worked here they did this job that job blah 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 you're just kind of going on the university and it just doesn't tell you anything and there's the whole issue with good on paper you know, after sifting through a thousand CVs for a week, you finally get someone in and you know, 10 seconds into that interview, they're not right for the company. Yeah. So it's a waste of everyone's time. And I think on the application side, it's quite demoralizing to just be doing these CVs all the time. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like I've made a point before in recent podcasts about how we're hiring for different roles at the moment. And I feel exactly that. Yeah. It is quite creative what we kind of do here. And, and the CV feels incredibly formulaic for that but when you do get lots and lots of applications um you end you do end up kind of reaching for those sort of like shortcuts things but i also think the hiring process is is it's become a lot easier for people to kind of Mm. apply for jobs over the last 10 15 years yeah and also i think there's a massive acceleration in the pandemic of Mm. because people are working from home more um they're able to look and apply for jobs much more easily. Like yeah. back when you used to be yeah. in an office, like you couldn't really be scrolling through job boards mm. so much. And I do think that's sort of leading to, like it's, it's been interesting the amount of applications we, we've had, but that then you try and follow up with slightly more yeah. sort of nuanced questions and you, and you don't get stuff. So back. what are, you, you mentioned leaning on shortcuts. 
what what would you say shortcuts are in a CV? Well, I think it ends up becoming those kind of biases, right? Of that, you know, you end up sort of looking for good universities and whatever. You know, if you've got sort of two hundred CVs in in front of you, you just end up sort of, you know, whether yeah. it's laid out nice and like you even do it as you're kind of going through it and so on, and it and it, it like it inevitably mm. happens because. It's part of the way we assess things, I think. Yeah, as like human beings, human, I mean, yeah, it's a box, right? We, we just want to put people in boxes. We're like, okay, I mean, what else do you have to go on, right? Yeah. Um, but what's fascinating is sometimes when these things go overboard and there's just so much you know, CV clicking, I spoke to a woman at an event yesterday whose daughter had been applying for jobs and just had a few interviews, but I think she did like a, something crazy, hundreds of applications and got like two interviews and they didn't go anywhere. She said, right. I'm going to go and do it the old-fashioned way, like because I think maybe the daughter didn't want to. And she basically she went to the high street and she just took her CV and she went into every shop apart from, I think she said, apart from KFC. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is funny because I said at that point, I that was my first job, not KFC, McDonald's. Um, and she said, literally, I got like seven interviews and multiple job offers, I think, from that. And it's just funny how then, because there's such a, a saturation in this this very ineffective online system that we have actually going old school face to face or even someone going on behalf of you is far more successful like statistically i just i found that really like weird and interesting this show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners and i wanted to thank the octopus group the Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series, and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson, or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. Yeah, and how how would you sort of redesign it then from scratch? So, I think there's a reason that there isn't an existing solution that that you know that fits, and there's a reason we're still using CVs today. So, the the, the solution is going to be complex because there's a lot of different bits to to kind of tackle. Um, but the idea would be creative applied questions that a, a company could kind of customize to their thing. So for example, you know, uh, here's, here's, here's the latest flavor of my gin. How would you market this on TikTok? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's actually something like we were also discussing this yesterday, like digitalization and social media is almost like it's not quite, but it is the start of the great equalizer because a young person, uh, you know, a, 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 person of a person of a certain age is almost always going to be on social media, Instagram, probably TikTok now, maybe Snapchat for like a certain demographic. But that's true of maybe someone in a private school and someone in a council estate. So almost like potentially is leveling out or at least like, you know, both of those different very people from different walks of life could answer that question because they're immersed in that world. So it would be something along the lines of creative creative like testing and answering do it yeah almost a modern day 
portfolio yeah and that that kind of side of things i think it is a it's a challenge right because in some ways it's never been easier and quicker to kind of make it in terms of if people are driven successful and so on and you're a classic example of this really in some ways and and the other kind of entrepreneurs of, of the younger generation you know the likes of ben francis and so on like it would not have been possible to have built gymshark to the size that it is now 10 years earlier because you just couldn't yeah. hit kind of global supply chains and, and all of that mm. and it's where this kind of thing is happening and in a way it is it makes it much more kind of like even and so on but in some ways it also entrenches the um, privileges because if people know how to use the systems and so on in their favor it's this th funny thing where it in some ways it's never you know yeah but yet social mobility is, yeah. is stalling i mean like i taught myself an entire business start <laughs> and then exited it basically from the internet from online networks yeah. and googling stuff and I'd say, yeah, I guess some people will be able to utilize things more than others. But I think if you can do, I mean, it's more than any UK institution did for me for social mobility. And yeah. so if that's, like, that's got to be a good thing that if you want it. And, you know, people are like these days when you grow up uh, in the world of social media, you're much more aware of money. Whereas I think maybe you weren't a couple of decades ago. Like all you'd know is your local streets, your neighbors, your parents, their friends. But now you see people on Instagram with completely different lifestyles, like how the other half live, which maybe you wouldn't really have been exposed to before quite in the same way. Yeah, it's one of the things that um, Eliza Philby, generational historian who's been on the podcast before, talks about is that, you know, when we were growing up, there, you, know, you were in competition with people in your class. So there's like 30 people that you were kind of in competition with. Now you're kind of in competition with a whole kind of global the world, yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically, and you're really kind of aware of it and so on. And it's, um, I just think that's, and that is partly what is driving sort of this uh, individualism amongst youngsters mm. as, as well, because they all crave being able to kind of um, have a hustle, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and 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 so it's 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 a lot harder. I mean, like you know, I you know, used to um, play sport to a kind of a reasonable level, and my sort of first. Yeah, you could be one of the best players in the county or whatever, and you you sort of go through the ranks, and like all of a sudden, it would that would be the realization of oh gosh, actually, like this, you've got to you've got to step up again. Whereas now, like people are aware of that from like from starting out, and that that mm. I think is just must be incredibly daunting for a youngster. Yeah, it, well, it it's is it is incredibly daunting. Like I was very daunted by what I could see seemingly other people achieving and so my where I wanted to get to was just crazy high and that that ambitious well that ambitiousness was almost daunting and almost crushing in a way that stopped me from getting started because you just think oh god like there's a million steps between where I am now and where I want to be and it almost feels untouchable but what I found the best thing to do is just to break things into very small small tasks like someone messaged me on LinkedIn and was like they were like a world-class Olympic athlete, but when they started off, it, it just started off with a, a 5K run or a 2K run or, or, some, or whatever it is, you know. No one rolls out of bed and raises 50 million as a baby, you know, like yeah, they do yeah. a small bit and they do a bigger business, then they do something else. And, you know, it's just take it in small steps and try and just also focus on you. Like the worst thing you can do 
who's looking at other people and what they're, and then compare yourself to them. Like they're on their own journey. Yeah. And they're probably much further on than you, which is the worst, which is what we're most guilty of. Like that's not helpful. Looking at someone that's clearly years ahead of you in their journey and then trying to compare yourself to, to them at their stage. Yeah. It's like nonsensical. I don't know, I don't know why we do it because it just makes you sad. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. And also people are like, I think one of the interesting things about doing this podcast and, and other things, and, and you've kind of touched on it lots, is that people are broadly quite helpful and quite sort of like instinctive to kind of like yeah. help where they where they can. And, you know, that is also one of the great things in the modern world is it's just so much easier to contact these people as well. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, you know, it's the, the whole, you know, there is – there isn't an unread cold email in the world is something that somebody said to me that they did kind of stick that like everything does get read pretty much. Really? Like, well, that's, I think that's... that surprised me because I, I always think of the opposite. People were like, oh, like I've emailed someone, they haven't emailed me back or they've LinkedIn messages and they haven't replied. I'm like, email again. Like, oh, totally. Like they haven't, as in like they probably haven't read it or they've, like I definitely, after my post on LinkedIn went crazy, I'm still still working through like hundreds of emails and stuff that I really do want to get through. But I mean, I do Tell think people them. miss things. I mean, yeah. when I was in the journalist world, briefly, you you definitely miss things. There's just stuff coming left, right, and centre. And I always say, well, people get think that oh, they haven't replied because they don't like me or they think I'm rude or something. But I mean, usually it is maybe it's sometimes reading it and not having time to reply. But I do think, yeah, I think that's yeah. true. I think that's I think that. But you see most things that kind of come in i think but talk to us about that kind of like linkedin post as well right because it went i mean absolutely crazy i mean we actually kind of came across yeah. each other on um twitter but um on linkedin and then later on you were like oh i didn't realize that, that i didn't realize it had quite yeah, that blown up that on, big, yeah. on on linkedin as much because it was a nice piece in the times kind of yeah and i'd seen that that's so it's very traditional and i think that of, was yeah i think all that came after the linkedin post yeah, so yes yes was, was generating the press like almost like mirrors to the beginning of the journey um but yeah i mean 12 million on link views on linkedin is cr just crazy like i obviously had no idea it would happen but um, things, when they blow up on LinkedIn, I think everything has their its own threshold. Yeah. But, like, even, like, a couple hundred thousand views on LinkedIn is a huge deal. Like, that's yeah. going to expand your network like crazy. Um, and the world literally did go crazy after that. Yeah. I'm and still, how many messages did you get, et cetera? Uh, I had 18,500 mix of messages and connection requests. And, by the way... And I hope someone from LinkedIn is listening to this <laughs> because they removed, it's like a cruel joke. They removed the select all feature. And so you have to go through every single connection request and click approve or deny. And then they started locking me out of my account because they were like, you've, you've vetted through a suspicious yeah, amount. There's clearly a bot on here. <laughs> like, so they kept locking out the account or threatening to lock out the account. And I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> that is, uh, that's pretty um, extraordinary. Um, but you're still making your way through them. And how many of those uh, messages were podcast requests? Many of them. <laughs> many <laughs> of them. I feel bad because I'm still, you know, when you just have, and it was almost actually, I had this with, with building the business. When it feels like there's a mountain that you need to climb, everyone I think is guilty of just putting it off yeah like when there was issues that I couldn't I felt like were really not something that was my forte or I knew would be difficult I almost put off dealing with them and yes I have 
I don't know, probably maybe up to a hundred podcast invites, and I, I'm still sorting through them. You make that a full time job being a podcast <laughs> guest. Um, what did you do? Like, I, I was very struck when you were saying that the you didn't really believe it until the money was kind of in the account and so on. And I think that's um, true of of lots of entrepreneurs because you have that heightened sense of yeah what can go wrong and so on because stuff is always going wrong in it what did you um yeah what did you kind of go out and do a bit like first paycheck was there anything that you particularly sort of went out and bought i started i started taking a lot of taxis everywhere (laughs) which sounds really weird but basically when i was building the business i was so frugal uh i did not like buy coffees out i like usually made a packed lunch or i got a one pound sandwich from boots which sadly doesn't exist anymore uh and i never ever i don't think i ever paid for an uber or a taxi before before i exited yeah and then i started taking taxis everywhere i was like oh going down the road uber it (laughs) (laughs) and then i realized actually i really like walking so i just went back to walking but yeah it was it was it was a lot of Ubers, pointless Ubers, hundreds of pounds on Ubers. Ubers every was, month. was the big yeah. was the big tree. And you are quite a big um cyclist as well. You've just done a big sort of sponsored ride and, and I so did on. the Ride London uh, Ride London one hundred, yeah, yeah. Which was a bit missold because it's actually hundred and five miles. Which is very cruel. <laughs> like you, well the worst thing is you have these little markers and as you get on with the ride, you're like twenty miles, oh fine, that was that was fine. And you get to like seventy and eighty and it's really starting to bite your legs. And then you see the little markers like 85, blah, blah, and, and then they're just nothing. And you're looking at your Strava and you're like, I've done 100 miles. Where the hell is the end of this race? Um, so, yeah, that was, uh, that was really good because I hadn't done – I did it once prior to lockdown. Yeah. And then with moving house and stuff, I just really got out of the cycling, having had previously been doing like 70, 80-mile rides at minimum, like once a week through summer. Um, so that was really nice. And I did not do training, somehow managed to beat my previous time. Wow. So I did a lot of 10 mile rides and then I did two 40 mile rides. But what I did is I just paced myself and I just ate all the time on the bike. Yeah. I just kept fueling and kept fueling. And what had happened on the first attempt is I went 50 miles without a break. And then when I braked and I needed like an hour and a half to recover. Yeah. This time the, the total amount of breaks was only 40 minutes because I was just taking it slow. Just, and finally, that whole slow and steady wins the race thing, which I've always thought was bollocks, <laughs> finally connected. And I was like, oh, okay, that's what that's about. And you've noticed, like, I mean, well, it's, you've noticed a bit of a trend with entrepreneurs and, yeah. and cycling, but I've noticed it more broadly. I think entrepreneurs, like there's the fitness kind of craze and whatever, mm. like Pete Dowd, who runs Elder, which is a kind of um, a, a, a social, looking to tackle a social care crisis. It's like he's out doing all these kind of ultra marathons and stuff and he's just like kids as well so i'm like mm. always uber impressed when i see <laughs> them doing it but i do think it's quite a mindset thing right because mm. you a you need to there is the focus on growth and the improvement in times and all of that but also it's a way to do something where you can actually which takes your headspace out of out what of it business. yeah like i had days where i could not switch my brain off like it was just firing and firing and the only calm i could ever get 
<clears throat> I was briefly living in in uh, in Hertfordshire before I moved back into proper proper London, and um, it was just like like going out on country roads, cycling, wind in your ears, just like silence and listening to nature, and not even being able to be on a phone. You just have to be yeah. like uh, taking your surroundings was the only sense of calm I could get. Um, but yeah, there's a whole there's a whole thing now where you know entrepreneurs are actually it's not you know avoid actually actively stopping themselves from burning out and being like okay i'm going to take time so that my mental health is in good shape and mental health is obviously very heavily linked to to exercise for a lot of people um but you know it's not just smoke and mirrors there's there's a lot of chemistry chemistry and biology that's going on here with with the serotonin levels and yeah. cortisol levels and all sorts of things so i think ex like it's really weird how it's a great effect but i think everyone's felt like Oh, I can't be bothered going out for a run. I can't be doing yeah. bothered doing a cycle, and then it, those are always the times when you probably need it most. Need it most. But I just don't understand why there's that like almost laziness. Surely, if it's good for you and it feels good, why don't we always want to, to engage just like that? I don't know. If you could go back in time for twenty four hours, any point in history, time travel kind of thing, when and where would you choose? I like the, the very specific 24 hours thing. I almost thought, oh God, it would be cool to go and solve a cl- crime, like yeah. see who Jack the Ripper actually was. Yeah. Um, but no, I've, I've thought, I've, I think I've heard, heard this question before. And um, I think uh, as a woman, I don't really understand why you'd ever want to go back in time because yeah. honestly, I can't, I, I can't like fathom how for hundreds, if not maybe thousands of years, women have had such a shit time and only like very recently as it started you know the kind of the push for equality but like big things like women's health um Mm -hmm. you know like i think queens for example in the past or noble women i think they're like sons or husbands in childbirth would decide whether they or the baby survived if stuff went wrong yeah it's just amazing amazes me so yeah i probably go into the future because i i think we're at the dawn of with you know, uh, you know, Web three and all that crypto space and stuff. I think like we're on the dawn of like amazing technology. So and things are only getting better for women. So I go ahead. I wouldn't go back. That's good. Okay, I'm going to reframe it then. That's okay. a good. Good challenge. Would you choose ten, fifty, or a hundred years in the future for a day? Yeah. No. Like maximum. Hundred. Yeah. The further ahead, the more different things would be. Like I feel like fifty years. I feel like walking through these streets, it wouldn't like look that different. Maybe like slight changes in fashion and some NFT jackets still like (laughs) bombing around. But um, yeah, no, probably like the further, I would say a thousand years if I could pick in the future. would be Okay, all right. It'd be very cool. (laughs) Really just dismiss my questions in every way. (laughs) Um, You've asked me this and I'll be answering it on my own terms. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, and was there a, a book or a piece of content that you found particularly helpful on your journey that you'd recommend to people to watch or listen? Not so much on my journey, but um, I did read a a book that I think people always misjudge because of the the cover, and I think it's it's called How to Get Rich, mm. but it's not a How to Get Rich book. It's a story of an entrepreneur. Um, I think he's called Felix Dennis and I might be getting that wrong. So sorry if I am. Um, But it's almost just a recount of the businesses that he built, which were in publishing and all the decisions he made. But it's, it's kind of like a fun story from quite a cynical sort of visionary. And uh, I think he built a fortune of 800 million before 
dying a, f- a fairly early death. But I listened yeah. to it on audiobook and it was hilarious. Like it was really, really funny, full of like sarcasm and wit. And I guess like especially that British humour that I don't know whether Americans would quite pick, yeah, pick up yeah. on. But yeah, really just one of the funniest things I've read and like super engaging. So, But also with a bit of like lessons, le- like lessons thrown in. Yeah. Like he's obsessed with keeping all your equity, which is one of those interesting <clears throat> questions of how much you should give away. But I'm in two minds about that because I've always believed that what's the point of having 100% of fuck all? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, totally. I'd rather have 10% or 5% of something huge, I think. Totally. And let people share with you on the journey mm. as as well. Like, I think you know, giving away equity and things can lead to you know, much more. Where we had a... Um, an episode with with Superbooks, which they talk about the kind of angels and VCs that they've had on this children's book publishing company, and it's um, yeah, it's it's kind of made a big big difference to them in terms of the support and all that they can yeah. bring. So. But you still need to pick right. You know, you can give away equity badly, so it's very much on the deal. Uh, you know, it's it's not. I feel like sometimes we are distracted by wanting to believe the outcome that we're really gunning for. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, this will solve, solve all my problems and just ignoring that little voice that's like, actually, do you really think this is the person or the, the, the you know fund or whatever that's going to do that for you? Definitely. Well, on that cheery note, Sally, thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. It's been a real blast. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways that we make this show possible is by the partners that we have that support us. They can be like today's, like the Octopus Group or the Fintech Alliance, but also we've done more consumer-facing brands like Primary Bid and Beer52. You can go to our website and check out more details at www.jobsofthefuture.co. The other way the show is made possible is by me going into organisations and talking about jobs of the future and the talent that is required to fill those jobs, how you retain them, how you attract them, and how great teams are built that can achieve superb things that we hear about on this show. If you want to know more on that, drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. We always love hearing from our listeners.